Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, brothers. I had uh, a few of you last week uh, encourage me and, and say, hey, thank you, Todd, for stepping in. And, and I, I found myself keep saying this. Um, it is such a joy to study God's Word with you. And uh, a couple of you looked at me like, well, no, you were teaching us, Todd. We weren't studying together. And I, that's not true. This, this enriches my heart and my personal life like you would not believe. So you actually create an accountability for me in my life and an encouragement simply by calling me to be someone who teaches uh, you all in these mornings because I get to dive in on these passages that I, that I may not have taken the time to really dig into. So thank you for that this morning. And, the, and as we get to the end of uh, the book of 1 John, so next week will be the the grand finale of the, uh, of the book of 1 John, and then we have some topics to look at over the next few weeks uh, regarding who we are as brothers and how we interact with the world. But as we come here to the end of 1 John, you remember last week we looked at the issue of, of our love and God's love and how those things were connected, and it was that great crescendo of, um, of Scripture as, as the Apostle John kind of got to the high point, and now he wants to solidify here in this last chapter these things about which he has been speaking. And the topic that we have to look at this morning is the topic of overcoming faith. And as we think about that, before we even get into the verses, we have to recognize that that we've got two problems when we speak of overcoming faith. The first problem we have when we speak of overcoming faith is that the culture that we live in right now doesn't really understand faith, Right? I mean, everybody talks about having a faith. You know, people that, whether or not they're in a church or not in a church, the idea of having a everybody wants to have that. Nobody really wants to say, I don't have a faith. But when it comes to what faith is, there's, there's, they're all over the map. And of course, we're real tempted, aren't we, to say, yes, those, those, those people in Manhattan and California, they're nutcases. They are all over the map when it comes to faith. But of course, we in Memphis, Tennessee, in the South, we've got our act together a little bit. We, we know what we're talking about. Well, let me, uh, let me uh, wipe out that idea for you. Um, if you don't know, have it already. Several, uh, actually, it was several years ago. So several years ago, long, you know, we, long before we got to this part, almost 10 years ago, I was actually asked, it's one of my favorite moments uh, of uh, being a youth pastor as far as just the, um, um, the contradiction in thought that just seems so ridiculous. I was asked by uh, one of our private schools here to come, and they wanted me to speak at their Honor Council Chapel. Honor Council Chapel, right? So they have an honor code, and then they have an honor council, right? Uh, this, this system of, of telling the truth, not lying, not cheating, all of that. And this is what I was told by the, by the chaplain of the school. Todd, we'd like you to come speak at our Honor Council Chapel but please don't mention any specific religion or system of belief. And it took me a while, it threw me out, you know, I had to think about, about 30 minutes later, I'm like, how do you even have an honor code without a system of belief? That's an absolute impossibility. And yet in this person's mind, it didn't, it didn't seem like that didn't make any sense. I mean, they actually bought into the idea that you could have this honor code but not even have a system of belief. I guess it was just a, about a year ago now, I was actually at a, another moment with one of our, our private schools here, and they had asked a pastor of a church, I won't say what church, but had asked a pastor of a church to lead in a prayer. And during the very beginning of his prayer, he said, as he was praying I guess to God, because what he's about to say, I'm not sure. He said, whether we sit under the star of David or the crescent moon or the cross, God, we did it. He went on and on and on. And I actually looked up and thought, did did we stop praying? Did we just switch gears here? You know, again, the idea of faith was just like whatever you want it to be. It's just about some kind of you can't even say belief. You're not even sure that's it. It's almost like it's a, it's a, it's a feeling. It's an emotion. So that's one problem we have. Where you, we speak about overcoming faith, well, we're not sure what faith is in our culture. 
And then we talk about overcoming faith. And the reality is, in many of our churches, or quote-unquote churches, the faith we, we profess has no real power. I was at a, a, a funeral a while back, and the pastor, again, at a church, said as a way of comforting to, the, to all of us who were there for the funeral, after some scripture was read, this is his exact words out of his mouth, I hope this becomes the word of God to you in your time of grief. And I wanted to stand up and go, that's supposed to make me feel better? <laughs> I hope. I hope this becomes the word of God to you in your time of grief. Hey, I've really got nothing for you, but I'm going to throw this out here and I hope it works. And that's what happens in our church. So there's no wonder when we have those kind of phrases and those kind of thoughts going on in our churches that when we're hit with really tough times in our life, we don't have a, our faith. And I hear people say this. Uh, my faith was rocked. My faith was shattered. Or somebody will say, I lost my faith. It's not an overcoming faith. It's a faith with no power whatsoever. I also remember hearing uh, a, a quote-unquote, I mean, I say he was a, he's a pastor. I don't know if you could call it really a church. Um, he actually used these words. Jesus is a great way to faith. And again, I thought, <laughs> a great way? I think you mean the only way. <laughs> He's not just a great way to faith. That, there's no power in that. There's absolutely no power. You can't overcome the stuff that happens in your life with a faith that's based on a, on a vague Christ, on a vague Jesus. And the Apostle John knew this. And what he's trying to do and throughout his, his uh, epistle here is to assure those who have true Christian faith that, that, that there was a rock that they were standing on. And here as he comes to the end of the book, he wants to take these themes that he's been speaking about, these tests of true faith. There's been three of them that you all have studied over the last uh, several weeks, last few months. He's, he wants to say, hey, listen, this, and he said this before, that, that true faith is modeled by true, there's true obedience, there's true belief, and there is true love. Or as one pastor says, a true faith, a, a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to pass the moral test, there's going to be obedience. It's going to pass the doctrinal test. There's going to be belief. And he's going to pass the social test. There's going to be real, true brotherly love within the context of the family of God. And here now in these last verses, he's bringing them all together. He's wrapping them all together. And he's showing us you can't, you can't take one and pull it out. You can't go, well, I passed two out of three. No, he's saying, no, go ahead and, and see yourselves, understand yourselves, gain assurance from the fact that these three uh, tests are intertwined, they're connected, and they're valuable for our assurance, and we have, to, we have to know all three. So, reading these verses, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, and going through verse 12, says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Man, those are beautiful words. Powerful words. As we look at these things this morning, if we have true Christian faith, we'll walk out of here with a great assurance. At the same time, let me say this. For anyone that wouldn't have true Christian faith, these words will be unsettling, but in a good way. Because it draws us to a, a real Savior and not a, and not a vague, vague Christ. I put there a quote at the beginning of the paper, or your page, from Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorite preachers. Uh, it says, Faith is not a soft option offered, offered to people who need a crutch to get through the rest of their lives. No, faith is the supernatural activity of God, whereby He opens blind eyes, unstops deaf ears, And a man or a woman says, I see it now. I get it now. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I want to look this morning at true Christian faith and Roman numeral number one. And I actually wish I'd put true Christian faith, not true faith, because of the culture we live in. But just so you know that I mean that, true Christian faith is born of God. Born of God. Everyone who believes, John writes, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. I remember telling you, I guess it was about four weeks ago, five weeks ago, about a young man who was dating a a girl in our church, and she decided to to break off the dating relationship because, you remember this, the guy, and he was about 30 years old, uh, came into my office, and he, he really fully believed that he was a Christian and that Jesus was the Son of God in the sense that God had decided that this human being was going to be the one that's going to to bear the sins of the world. And he said, I do believe in the virgin birth, but he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And then he proceeded to, to make arguments from Scripture of why he had concluded this. So fascinating. Always fascinating when I have in my office someone who, who wants to challenge particularly what I think are pretty fundamental beliefs. But it just made me realize that this idea that, uh, that Jesus is, is the Son of God is, or that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he's a great man or a great prophet. And this guy was even saying, hey, I think he actually paid for the sins of the world. I just don't think he's God. And you're going, wow, we need to talk. I want to hear this. I at least want to understand how you came to that conclusion. And we walk through those things, but clearly here, and I walked him straight to the gospel of, I mean, to, the, uh, to the, this epistle, 1 John, and I said, hey man, let, here's where the Bible does say that. And you need to look at this and, and understand it. And the challenge is always going to be, you can look throughout the history of the church for the last 2,000 years, the challenge has always been on two issues. Whether we can trust this is the word of God, Or whether we believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And those are the two challenges. And everything, every attack of Christianity comes at one of those two places. Because if you can unravel the Word of God, then you can unravel the reality of Christ. Or if you can challenge the reality of Christ, then you can unravel the Word of God. And they go together and the, and, 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 and the attack is always going to come on those two things. And what's being made very clear here in this very first verse, he's saying Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus, the human being, the, the man who walked the earth, is, John says, the Messiah, is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And he points out, and this happens, this true faith happens, Because you've been born of God. It's a supernatural activity. It's not simply an intellectual assent. And that's why we say when we share the gospel that we're proclaiming the gospel. We're not trying to convince anybody of the gospel. You and I cannot convince anybody of the gospel. You and I were not convinced of the gospel. It was revealed to us by the Holy Spirit choosing to regenerate my mind and my heart where I could through that supernatural activity, go, oh. And the Lord gives me the power to grasp the truth of who he is. So it's a, it, we're, that's what happens. We're born of God. It's this supernatural activity. Roman numeral number two. True Christian faith is displayed 
in evidence. True Christian faith is displayed in the evidence of our lives. Look over just a few uh, chapters back in 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And this is one of the, the, this is the main thing he's saying. You're going to know, you're going to have an assurance of your faith because you're going to see these evidences in your life. And again, the, 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 uh, the effects of this or the connection are so important to get. It's not that you have the evidences and then that makes you a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, the evidences will, t- will take place, will follow. So it's not that we work our way into being followers of Jesus. It's not that we work our way into being Christians. Talking to a, a young man yesterday, we're interviewing for a position here at, at our church, and we were asking about his testimony. And I'm always listening for this part. Does this guy or this woman understand that faith is something that comes as a result of being born of God and that the works that exist in their life are the result of that? Or are they thinking that they're going to convince me that they're a Christian because of the, of the, the things they're doing for Christ? And this guy said it as he was speaking. He said, I understand, even as I've lived this Christian life, that this is all of God. It's not of me. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, bingo, we're good. (laughs) This guy understands the gospel. He knows that there has to be evidences, but he knows where those evidences are coming from. So, letter A. First of all, love for the Father and His children. It's displayed in evidence. First, love for the Father and His children. I have this book that was written. uh, I, I couldn't find it today, but I... Didn't know where my bookshelf it was. I was searching for it this morning. Um, and uh, back in the, the mid-2000s, there was all these books coming out talking about uh, why millennials and this generation was not engaging in the church. And this particular book, the title of the book was, I Love Jesus But Not the Church. And then went on to talk about, you know, and, and uh, that title's always bothered me because of this. That's impossible. <laughs> That's what this is saying here in these verses. Everyone who loves the Father and whoever been has been born of Him, by this we know that we love the children of God. By this we know we love the children of God. So you cannot say, I love Jesus, but not His church. That is an impossibility for a Christian. Absolutely impossible. Those two things go together. To love the Father is to love His children. You're going to love His children. That's going to show your love for the Father. Those two things are completely intertwined. They cannot be separated. And I've seen this displayed in the lives of of other other young men. I remember several years ago, gosh, now it's almost 20 years ago, there was a guy who had grown up in our youth ministry in Augusta, Georgia. Phenomenal soccer player. Brilliant young man. And just good-looking. Everything about this guy was like, you know, the total package, right? So he goes off to uh, Princeton University to play soccer. He ends up starting on the team as a freshman at Princeton. And I go up to visit him. And uh, he's up there. And, uh, you know, we're walking around the campus. And, I mean, everybody, everybody's like, hey, John, how are you doing? I mean, everybody knows him. Everybody wants to know him. Beautiful girls want to know him. He tells me, hey, uh, after dinner t- tonight, Todd, do you want to go with me to uh, to the campus ministry that I go to. I'm like, yeah, John, I'd love to do that. That's why I'm visiting you. I'm trying to encourage you in your faith. I know it's tough here at Princeton. He said, yeah, it is tough. You know, even the, the largest campus ministry here, Todd, and again, this is a couple decades ago, largest campus ministry is probably ours, and we probably have 30 or 40 people that come to it. I'm like, great, I want to see it. This will be awesome. We get there that night, and honestly, you know, no offense to those people, hopefully none of you were there that I'm speaking about, it was the... It was the biggest bunch of 40 nerds I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, there was nobody cool there at all. They didn't look cool. They didn't, I mean, no, no, no athletes. No one that looked anybody like John. None. Right? And John's there, and he's engaging these people, these other students, like, it's, like they're his best friends. Hey, man, how are you doing? Hugging him? 
And John gets up, he's like part of the, you know, he's part of the, the leadership team and does announcements. And he had never been that outgoing, even in high school. And afterwards, later on that night, when we were just the two of us in his dorm room, I said, John, you know, I didn't say, I wanted to say, is there, is there not a cool campus ministry, cooler campus ministry? Like what? I said, John, hey, it's, it's a surprising. Those, those guys and men and women there seem nothing like you. Nothing like, you know, athletes. And he's like, he's like laughed. He said, yeah. He said, but you know what? I mean, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. They're my family here. I remember flying back home from, from uh, Princeton, New Jersey, thinking, man, here's this freshman in college who gets it. To love the father is to love his children. I cannot say I love Jesus and not his church. John had true faith because you could see that connection right there. Letter B, the second thing, or a second evidence spoken about here in these verses is that obedience, or, or excuse me, other displayed obedience to his commands. So first of all, letter A, love to the fa- for the father and his children. Letter B, obedience to his commands. It says in that verse, when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Man, that whole issue of following God and obeying his commands has become such a hot button issue in our Christian culture these days. You know, in the last five, six, seven years, there's been whole ministries and books and pastors who say, this is my thing. I, we just need to stop this whole idea that we're, that we're calling people in our church to some kind of obedience. We need to give them grace. Have we forgotten grace? That's moralistic. That's legalistic. And so they write these books that are like, you know, hey, don't add anything to Jesus. It's just about Jesus. And uh, have whole conferences that rise up around this. The problem is, it's actually just an old, it's a new version of an old, uh, uh, almost heresy. Antinomianism, which means against the law. And what they're trying to do is say, oh, to really rest on grace, you can't talk about obedience. Because once you start talking about obedience, you've totally missed the point of grace. John says that's impossible. Those two things go together. Understanding the grace of God, of course, leads to the issue of his commands. Now, turn back in your Bibles to John chapter uh, 15. John chapter 15. And let me just say, you, can, you might as well go ahead and put a marker there in John 15, 16, and 17. One of the things I just love about this epistle of 1 John is that there's this amazing connection. Clearly, you can see that, uh, that what happened there in John 13 through 17, we call the upper room discourse. And what the Gospel of John does is expand on what Jesus said, the prayers that took place, what what happened there in the upper room the night before he was crucified. And we get this bigger picture. And you can clearly see from the the epistle of John that that the Apostle John was very moved by the things Jesus had to say. Because you see these things going back and forth. And we're going to go there several times. But look what it says in John chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. John chapter 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my, command, my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I love this, all this connection. First of all, Jesus says to his disciples, listen, you bearing fruit is going to prove that you belong to me. And then he says, I want you to abide in my love. I want you to rest in my love. And when you rest in my love, you're going to obey my commandments. And why do I want that, he says? I love what it says in verse 11. I want it that my joy... Jesus' joy would be in us and our joy would be complete. And I read that and I'm like, that's what I want. I so desperately want that in my life. I want joy that doesn't depend on circumstances. And God's word says, Todd, if you want that, then obey his commandments. There's been a certain way that you, as a created uh, image bearer of God, have been designed. 
And when you operate inside that design, then Todd, you are going to have joy. And what Jesus is saying when he calls his disciples to obey his commandments is not like, hey, here's some rules that I think you should follow so that you can prove that, that I'm God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is the way you were created to operate. And if you do this, you're going to have joy. When you operate outside my commandments, you're going to have trouble. It's going to be difficult. So I want joy for you. So get inside those commandments. And when you have that, you're going to have this freedom. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter, I think I have it right down here. Yeah, Matthew chapter 11. He says to, to his disciples, come to me, all you who are, are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can he say that? Because he calls us to live out a holy life. How could he say that's an easy burden and a, and a light yoke? He says that because he knows this is the way we have been created. I have a, uh, you know, a car, uh, or years ago I had a car that, uh, that took diesel fuel, which was ridiculous, but it seemed cool you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago. And I'd always have to remind myself when I go to the, to the gas pump, oh, Todd, diesel, 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 as if the sound of that engine wouldn't have made me think about it enough. Why did I have to do that? Because if I put gasoline in it, if I go, well, I just like gas better. I like the price better. It's easier. That's great. It would have run for a little bit, like maybe a block. <laughs> and then it would have just, you know, blown up or locked up. I don't know enough about engines to know what it would have happened, but it wouldn't have been good. Now I've got to put the right fuel in. That's what God is saying to us. My commandments are the right fuel for your life. That's what you need to, uh, to, to walk in me. Obedience to his commands. Uh, letter C. This true faith overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And in this, the meaning is this. That your faith separates you from the world... I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Separates from the, you from the world and attaches you to Christ. So this overcoming the world is you're separated from the world and you're attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? It looks like this. It looks like, first of all, that the outside influences, the outside influences in culture, that those are less and less having an impact upon you. Or that your faith is more and more able to overcome those things. And, so the, and we're facing it all the time. Everything in our culture wants to bend us in a certain direction. I know, I know, I know intellectually, I even know in my heart that having more stuff and having more money will ultimately not make me happy. I know when people say more, you know, money can't buy happiness. I know that. But I'm influenced to think every once in a while, well, I don't know, give me a little bit and let me see. <laughs> let me just try it out, because maybe I can make a good run at it. I know Solomon tried, and it didn't go so well for him, but maybe I can do a better job with that. That's the outside influence of the world. But then faith, true faith, comes in and gives me the ability to detach from that. To go, okay, I, I know that's not true. Now it's humorous when we're talking about having more money. It becomes challenging when we lose our job. We wonder, in this, is there, how could God be sovereign? Where, where's my, how do I call him provider? Is, is, he even a, is, is there even a God? And at that point, you're, you're, having, you, you're in need of an overcoming faith. You're in need of a faith that detaches from the world and just only understands God in, the, in a concept of what can he give me. But not only that, there's, there's temptations inside. So this overcoming faith has to not only deal with the outside influences, it has to deal with the temptations that exist inside us. Our own propensities to sin. In James chapter 1, it talks about temptation in the context like this. It basically says, uh, 
that, that I, my, my dad is a, and my grandfather and my great uncle. I mean, everybody in the family, I think except for me, uh, really loved to fish. What I loved is that my grandfather had this really awesome tackle box with like 60 different lures inside the tackle box, all these little different, you know, compartments and lures and things like that. And I always wanted to use, you know, there's this, I remember this one, it was like this silver fish about this big with big giant three hook things coming out of it. Only we were fishing on this lake in, uh, outside of Madison, Wisconsin, and apparently that lure doesn't catch anything in that lake, which at that point I thought, well, can we go to the lake where this catches something? Because I want to use this and not this stupid worm, Right? And now I read James chapter 1, and it basically talks about that we are enticed. The evil one entices us with our own propensity to sin, our own temptation. I think of this, I like, you know what, there's a, there's a tackle box that Satan has, and there's a little compartment that says Todd Erickson, and there's certain lures that are in there. You know, and then there's a, another part of the box that has a, you know, it says, it says Jake in it. Right? And there's another box that says Jerry in it, another part of the box, and they've got certain lures in it. There's inner temptations that we have to face. And we need a faith that overcomes that. And I never, I never, uh, this never became more real to me than I, I think I shared with, uh, this with you before that uh, back in 2000, I was over in Scotland at a conference, and I ended up at, at dinner uh, at a table with about eight of us, and at the table that night at dinner, was the speaker, which was J.I. Packer, you know, the guy that wrote Knowing God. At that point, he's 75. He's 90 years old now. At that point, he's 75, and of course, I thought, that's like being 150, you know. And now I'm realizing, wow, that's not that old at all, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget this. I, I shared this with you, I think, a month ago. He said, uh, he said, I've never... I've never faced more temptation than I'm facing now that I'm getting older. And, you know, as a 35-year-old, I thought, oh, no, oh, no. You're 75, and it's worse than you're 35? I'm 35, and I'm feeling like it's pretty bad. I was kind of hoping when I got to 75, i catch a little break. And he's saying, pray for me. The, temp- the guy that wrote Knowing God, right, says, pray for me. The temptations in my life are greater now than they ever were before. Man, you've got to have an overcoming faith. You have to have a faith that can face the inner temptations of your life. That's what John is talking about. Well, then turn the page. We now pick up because at the end of verse 5, the end of verse 5, John says, uh, oh, I'm on the wrong chapter here. Verse 5, he says, whoever is that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's now gone back to what he said in verse 1, right? He said, he's talking about belief in the Son of God, and then now he's back there again. And then he goes on in verses 6 through 12 to continue to speak more clearly about the foundation of Jesus being the Christ. And so Roman numeral 3, true faith is grounded in testimony. True faith is grounded in testimony. Letter A, it is an historical testimony. It is an historical testimony. He says in verse 6, This is he who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. And you're reading that. If you read that last night, you're thinking, I hope the Spirit testifies about something, because I don't know what John just said. Water and the blood? What does he mean by that? Scholars have looked at that for years, and some of them have made some of the wrong choices, though it seemed to make sense. Some have thought, oh, he's talking about the, uh, his baptism, and then and the, he's talking about baptism, Christian baptism, and then he's talking about the communion supper. Only that wouldn't make any sense here, because it doesn't prove the historicity of Jesus. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't testify to the reality of Christ. Others have thought, oh, you know, it's when he was stabbed in the side on the cross, and water and blood flowed out. It's got to be that. Well, I mean, I, I guess, but that still doesn't, doesn't speak of this great testimony. Why does he say by, and actually literally he says through, water and the blood? Well, at that time in, uh, in uh, Christianity or in, in, uh, in the church, what they were facing was this heresy by this guy named Serenthus. Serenthus was proposing this idea that a lot of people, a lot of Christians were buying into, or a lot of people in the church were buying into, that Jesus was this human born, like he was just a man and, and he wasn't fully God yet. 
And then at his baptism, at his baptism, the Spirit of God kind of descended on him. Now, it didn't, they, didn't, they didn't intermix. He wasn't fully God and fully man. He was, just a, he was just a guy who happened to have God's Spirit on him. And then he went through his earthly ministry, doing miracles and all that. And then at the end of his life, or excuse me, right before the cross, that the Spirit of God left because God can't possibly die. So therefore, God left at that point, and it was just Jesus the guy that went to the cross. So that was the heresy that they were facing. So in the context, what John is saying here is, no, no, no. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, went through the baptism and through the cross. He was fully God, fully man, the whole time. And what John is speaking to is the the historical, historical aspect of this. That he went through his baptism, through his death, as the Son of God. And this historical reality is so important. Turn back to John chapter 17. Again, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night and then praying for them. On the night that he, before he was betrayed, or the night he was betrayed. In John chapter 17, he's praying. And in verse 8 of John chapter 17... I tell you guys to keep your hand there, and I don't do it myself. John chapter 17, verse 8, he says this. For I have given them the words that you gave me. God, Jesus speaking to his Father. And they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And then look at verse 20. I do not ask only... For these only, but also for you who will believe in me through their word. And what he's saying here is, listen, I have given the words to the disciples. And then he's praying. He says, and the rest of the world is going to believe the truth about me through the message that these disciples bring to the world. Which is the gospels and our epistles. So that's why you can't unravel the word of God. That's why you can't unravel the historicity of Jesus. That's why the Word of God is so important for us to get it. It can't become the Word of God for you. Or as one uh, whole denomination believes, they would say this is not the Word of God. They would say this contains the Word of God. Well, that's a slight variation that throws us completely off. It can't be that. It reminds me of the debate that's going on around the whole Supreme Court issue and the Supreme Court nomination. It's fascinating. Because when Justice Scalia died, we lost on the Supreme Court the greatest advocate for textualism that existed on the Supreme Court. Because right about, I guess, 50 years ago, up until 50 years ago, everybody on the Supreme Court was a textualist, which means that they would look at the document of the Constitution and, and, and interpret it based on what the writers intended when they wrote the document. But somewhere about 50 years ago, we started to have Supreme Court judges that say, oh, no, 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 this needs to be a living document, and we're progressivists. And so we need to, we need to interpret the law, and interpreting the law means we need to, to figure out what we think it means today based on culture and what's around us. And so now you have in the Supreme Court, you have some justices who are progressivists who believe that the Constitution is a living document, and they test the winds of culture to decide what they think the document ought to say today. And then others, like Neil Gorsuch, which is why the, the, uh, the liberals do not want Neil Gorsuch on the, on the court, because he's a textualist. He would say, no, we've got to stick with what was intended when the document was written. And then I look at that and go, huh, that's exactly what's happened in the church. <laughs> we have textualists who believe this is the word of God, and we need to understand what it meant when it was originally written, and apply that to our lives. And then we have pastors and scholars who go, oh, no, no, that's ridiculous. We need to test the wind of culture, kind of see which thing, way things are going and flowing, and, when it's, and we just don't want to be, and here's the word that you, you know, never want said about you, on the wrong side of history, right? Which makes you feel shame. Instead, I'm like, no, no, no. There was a historical Jesus. That's the correct side of history, <laughs> That's where history is, by what actually happened. And so the word of God actually matters. And so what, 
when, when John starts to speak of the testimony of Christ, he said, listen, the testimony of his baptism where he was Christ is real. The testimony of his death where he was Christ is real. Those are two testimonies. And then there is the Spirit of God inside of you that testifies to that truth. And so the Spirit, you know, and, and, and turn back to John 15 again. You've got to see this because you've got to see this connection. John chapter 15, we read this verse last week. John 15, 26. He says about the Holy Spirit, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So there's that. He's saying, I, He is going to testify to the truth about me. And then in John chapter 16, verse 13, He says it again. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but ever, whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So it's a historical testimony. Your faith is grounded in a historical reality. And then it goes on in letter C that this, that this testimony is a convincing testimony. Uh, letter B, not C. We skipped B. Letter B, it is a convincing testimony. It says, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree. And of course, this goes back to Deuteronomy when Deuteronomy says, hey, listen, you can't bring, you don't just bring any accusation to bear that people aren't guilty unless you've got two or three witnesses. And then you can confirm the testimony that is there. And it's a convincing testimony because it's truth. I don't know how many of you uh, get a Time magazine, um, but uh, the April 3rd issue, the cover story, it's going to say, is truth dead? Now, I know they're taking a shot at the current administration, and that's a good shot that they're taking at the current administration. But the reality is, we could say that about administrations going back, unfortunately, a few years, a few times. So the question is, truth dead? Is truth dead? What a, what a ridiculous thought. <laughs> but that's where we are in culture. Well, can you really say that's true? Can we even say we even have truth? Can you say that you have objective truth? Is that even a real thing? Well, if it's not, we've got no faith. The reality is, it, it is. It's, 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 there is a truth and there's a truth. There's something that really happened. So no matter what is announced from Congress or the White House or the Supreme Court, there is a truth of something that really happened. So saying about Jesus, this is a convincing truth, a convincing testimony. Letter C, it is God's testimony. It is God's testimony. This might be my favorite part in this whole testimony thing because he said, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So it's God that does this. Alistair Begg, uh, in writing about this or speaking about this, says this. You know, it's like the guy that says, I, I think, you know, I understand that God thinks that Jesus, uh, that Jesus was his son. But I know better. <laughs> I understand that God thinks Jesus was his son, but, I, but I, actually, I actually know better. Throughout history, and even our most recent history, there have been these challenges to the historicity of Jesus. Now, there actually was this uh, Jesus project that started in, I think, 2008, and then was suspended in 2009, um, probably because it was just ridiculous. I mean, they gave real answers, but it just, it just wasn't working out. But, but my favorite of these is the Jesus Seminar that was started in 1985 where 150 scholars got together and they looked at the words of Jesus and voted, this is my favorite part, voted with colored beads to decide, well, if it's a red bead, that's what Jesus actually said. If it's like a black bead, he didn't say that at all. And if it's a pink bead, he maybe said it or something like that. You know, well, here's what's funny. But you voted? You voted. You voted on whether or not something was true. You voted. Well, that's a humorous thought. It either is or it isn't. We don't just go, ah, not feeling that one today. I vote this. But here's what I thought about the whole thing. What was God thinking about the Jesus seminar? Was he rattled? Oh, hope the vote goes well today. <laughs> no. 
No. No group of 150 scholars sitting in some big hall like this boat matters nothing to the truth. God's testimony is greater than man's testimony. Truth is not changed by a vote. If we took a vote across the world right now to determine whether God was real, whether Jesus was the Christ, however the vote turned out would have nothing to do with the reality of God and the reality of Jesus being the Christ. Testimony of God is sure regardless of us. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And finally, Roman numeral four, true faith, true Christian faith is eternal. True Christian faith is eternal. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. As one dear pastor said, experiential reality leads, excuse me, uh, yeah, experiential, excuse me, historical reality leads to experiential certainty. Historical reality leads to experiential certainty. Now let me say this. We've talked today, this morning, about true Christian faith. We've been encouraged by God's word of the reality that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. We've, we've laughed at, at the silliness of human scholars voting on whether or not Jesus actually said certain things or Jesus existed. We, we chuckled at, at those that would test the winds of culture to decide what God's word says or who Christ is or what we ought to, to do. We've done all that. And here's the great temptation, brothers. The great temptation to what we said earlier about overcoming faith. The great temptation is to do this, to walk out of the room and when it comes to culture, to... Uh, to uh, withdraw, to create our own little Christian bubbles to protect ourselves from the influence of the world. And even within the context of the church, we see churches, we go, oh, those churches, they think that this contains the Word of God, that they hope this becomes the Word of God. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to create whole other denominations and we're going we're gonna to just, we're going to get away from them. We're going to try to be as far away from them as we can. Now I understand doctrinally, theologically, that's a good place to be. But that's not what we're called when it comes to just living out our lives. That withdrawing and kind of snubbing our nose, looking down at the world. Oh, those idiots, those idiots at the Jesus Seminar. Those idiots across the, the city over there. Those idiots at that church over there that think that they're a church. That, brothers, don't do that. This whole thing happened because not because you and I were smarter than the people across the side of town. It's not because we were smarter than the scholars at the Jesus Seminar. It's because we were born of God. It's because He worked in you when, when, when you didn't believe, when you were still a sinner, He died for you. And so we don't walk out of here today with a pride like, oh, I've got the truth, and they don't. No, it breaks our hearts. We walk out of here and we engage the world. I hope, I hope what's gone through your mind this morning, and if it's not, I hope it's going through. Who are those men that you know who need to know Jesus? Who are those, who are those men who, who the, the supernatural activity of God has not taken place and they're still blind? And not that you would say they're blind and I'm not. That you'd look and go, Lord, please. And you would plead for them. Who are those pastors in churches that need to be saved? And you'd pray for them. That it would break our hearts. That we'd walk out of here and we would engage the world. And that you'd be thinking of that person or those people. That those men would be, those names right now would be in your head. And, and your heart would be broken for them. And you'd realize, maybe I've been put at this time in history, in this location, and in relationship with that man, because Jesus wants to use me to bring the message, just like John, the apostle, was bringing the message. And maybe what's supposed to happen is, I need to invite that guy to amen next week. Or you know what, we're a couple weeks away from Easter. 
I gotta invite that man to my church. I, I need to keep inviting him. I need to keep bringing him the message. I need to pray for him every day. Because I bet that for most of us, if not all of us in this room, that our, that our birth in God started with somebody else's prayer for us. Brothers, this assurance gives you the freedom to not worry about the world. It gives you the freedom to boldly go out and to live in the world assured of your faith. You don't have to live in a bubble. And you're free to engage the lost with this beautiful truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom you and I were the chief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you for your word given to us through your disciples, through the apostles, passed down and preserved by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that there, is, there are documents that, that speak to us about the historicity of Jesus, not just being a man, but being the Son of God, the testimony of your word. Thank you, Father, for the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit that speaks to our hearts regarding the reality of your truth. And thank you for the experiential certainty that comes as a result of that historical reality. And thank you that whoever has the Son has life. And now, Father, Give us the strength. Give us that overcoming faith that walks out of this room and into this world with a boldness that is not found in us, Father, but a boldness that is found in the assurance we have received through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to engage a lost world with compassion. Father, give us that same compassion that caused you to look on the masses and be brokenhearted because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Father, send us out into that world, we pray. And do your supernatural work in our friends. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.